welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potzagire, your host, an artist and educator. Guzman talked about her experience as an English language learner and reframing that term to emergent bilingual as she now works to help students who are learning a second language. She shared some strategies art educators can use in reaching and teaching emergent bilingual students, as well as advocating with administration and higher level bureaucrats. I loved hearing about her art journaling and how she's taking time to reflect as part of her own art-making practice. That ebb and flow in life is so real and so important to talk about. We can't do everything all the time, as much as we may want to. Anna has created a wonderful Padlet where she curates resources for connecting art and English learning. She also shared several scholars whom she's learned from, which I will link to. You can check out her work at tesolscholar.com, T-E-S-O-L scholar.com. Anna Guzman was born and raised in Los Angeles. She is first-generation Salvadorian and an Angelino. Growing up, Anna always found the arts to be a form of self-expression and therapeutic. Her favorite art medium is graphite and she enjoys creating still life and life drawings. In college, Anna wanted to pursue 2D animation, but discovered an affinity for teaching. She received her BA in art education from California State University in Los Angeles. She also holds a single subject credential in art, and she recently completed her master's in TESOL from Pepperdine University. Anna currently aspires to create and find resources to support teachers in combining art techniques and strategies for teaching English as a second language and help build students' critical thinking skills. You can, again, visit her website, tesolscholar.com, to see Anna's research and some of her projects. If you're interested in networking or collaborating, you can also email her at tesolscholar at gmail.com. Let's hear from Anna. So I am talking with Ana Guzman today, and I'm excited to hear your story and your expertise because I met you at the California Art Education Association conference where you were presenting, and I loved what you had to say there and just some reframing that I know we'll get to. But maybe if we could start with your story, your journey, how did you become an art teacher how did you get involved with TESOL and working with English language learners? Hi, Rebecca. Hi. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really humbled and grateful that you made space for me today. I think it was our first conference, right? I think we said that. Yeah. It was our first conference. <laughs> yeah, I was really excited to meet art educators and advocates and people that are, are out in the field, you know, during the gist of all this pandemic stuff, just adapting and evolving and being there for the kids. My story starts, I was English learner myself. I am first generation here. My family came from El Salvador. And so, you know, growing up, my family, we didn't, they didn't know any English. I learned English when I went to school and I went, they put me in preschool. And so I started there and I really loved school. It felt like a safe place to be. It was a very positive experience for me throughout. I did live around Pico Union area, which a lot of people that are from Los Angeles know that it can get a little crazy there. And then we moved also to East LA in the 80s. There were a lot of gang-related activity and stuff around there. So school always felt like a very safe place, mm -hmm. you know, to be around. And so that was my experience. And so my grandma always used to say that I would pretend to be a teacher 
since the beginning like like I was maybe four years old and I guess that stuck but then I started going to school and I loved the arts and so when I had to go into college I went in as an art major I went in I actually wanted to be an animator I went to into an animating program I went to San Francisco with aspirations to be an illustrator so I took some courses there and then I did some work study and I did some tutoring and I did summer school and I fell in love again with teaching. So I'm like, how can I mix both art and teaching? And so art education came around and I switched my major to art education. I've been an art teacher since 2005 on and off. I've done curriculum development. And then also it came, you know, full circle because I've been in the neighborhoods and the communities that I serve. I lived here all my life. And so I would always get these English learners in my classroom and I was teaching art, but I was also teaching language. So Mm -hmm. when the pandemic came, I took the opportunity to get my master's and I got it doing TESOL. Mm -hmm. So because to me... I wanted to still be involved with the arts, but I also knew that there were a lot of opportunities out there to teach English learners or bilingual emergents, as we were talking about, and make make their learning experience better. I think there's so much work to be done in that area. And so I'm really happy that I'm going into that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was really inspired by the way, like it's now that I say it and that you say it, it seems very simple, but this just shift in language of saying English language learners versus emergent bilinguals, like the focus there is not on the deficit, like it's on what they have that they're, it's incredible. Like I don't speak two languages. This is something that is very impressive to me and that should be looked at as like, this is an amazing thing that you're doing and that you're learning. Yeah, yeah. Just like going back to school, you know, and still being, I think for everybody that is working and in their career to still go and learn new things Mm -hmm. was very inspiring. And doing my master's was inspiring. And I learned a lot of things. I learned a lot of new research that's happening. And this is where I got educated on that. And one of my professors, he started talking about how there's this shift going on and how, you know, English learners should feel empowered that, you know, they do have this power of having two or more languages, you know, and it's not an easy thing. Mm -hmm. And to not see it, like you say, a deficit, but rather than something that they're working towards and empowering themselves even more mm-hmm. and that will help them throughout in their career because it certainly helped me to be a bilingual person in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think I also connected because I've I've probably said on the show before, but my husband had a similar experience to you where he spoke Spanish at home and then was kind of thrown into school in the United States and like, okay, wow, like here's a new language. <laughs> How do I do this? Yeah, for me, I was born here, but, you know, up to four, it was like everywhere I went, we were just speaking Spanish. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was like I was in the U.S., but I never really got in that, quote unquote, that American experience, you know, so it was just all Spanish. And my family had just immigrated here. So and then going to school families also spoke Spanish. So it was just Mm -hmm. my teacher that spoke English to me Mm -hmm. and how I was exposing myself. And then there was TV, right? Like, I don't know. In the 80s, TV was your babysitter, right? Like, (laughs) you you will learn what was a regular family through Mm -hmm. TV shows. So uh, yeah, it's so interesting there too. And how you said the American experience, like in quotes, and what's a regular family and you know, all of these things are maybe not like it's not one experience. It's not one regular thing. Like your experience was also an American experience, you know? 
Yeah. And you see yourself more, now it's more inclusive, right? Now it's more like getting there. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're really seeing how people, how you should respect your culture and where you come from and your traditions. But back in the eighties, it was more like, I remember, you know, being embarrassed that I was Salvadorian. So I went to elementary school with the same people. We went through K through eight together to the same school. And then we got back together like 20 years after, you know, and we, we saw each other and they're like, cause I was, I was born around Pico Union, but then we moved to East LA, but East LA was primarily Mexican. And so I didn't want to be the only one that was Salvadorian and be like excluded. Right. Mm. So I pretended to be Mexican and I looked Mexican and they, they adopted me. And so I would say words and, you know, the slang and, mm. and coming back as an adult with my friends, they're like, we didn't even know you were Salvadorian. Like, yeah, I was. Oh my gosh. This is like a shock to us. <laughs> so, so because I wasn't very proud, I wanted to be American. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to assimilate. I wanted to be like, everything that I saw on TV, Mm -hmm. it wasn't more like, well, what can I bring? And what can people learn from me? It was more like, no, I just want to fit in. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I feel like that's a pretty universal thing, you know, like we all just Mm want to be part of something, part of a community. Yeah. I'd love to hear more about like some of the teaching strategies, but maybe even connecting to what you were just saying, helping students because you've been in their shoes. How do you help students who are also maybe feeling like, oh, I just want to fit in. Like, how do I, how do I do this? Yeah. The arts are definitely something because like we talked in the conference, it gives them a voice, right? Like the arts, you don't particularly have to know the language, but you can use different types of things to express yourself. So I felt that a lot of English learners a lot of emergent bilinguals would come to my classroom, you know, even after school or during lunch or during breaks, they would come and they would just want to connect. Mm-hmm. And I would do this, but not with a lot of understanding about strategies or teaching or anything like that. Because when you go to a teacher prep program, they teach you all the academic stuff they teach you all the theories they teach you all this right but and you should know you're a teacher too but you're thrown there and it's not just the teaching right? i'm not just teaching art i'm teaching self-esteem i'm teaching all these other things that i haven't been taught in the teacher credential programs right mm-hmm. so going into my master's program i also learned about social emotional learning and i'm really big on that because it's the whole child, especially with emergent bilinguals. I feel that that's very important to not just teach them grammar and structure and all of these linguistic rules, but how are they going to use language? How are they going to use that tone for language? In what particular place are they going to use this or that? And they have to have that self-esteem to be able to make mistakes as well. And so it has to be a very safe place to learn. It has to be a very culturally relevant place to learn as well, where they're okay with using, you know, where they're going through that transition where they don't, it's not that they don't want to use the second language that they're learning, but it's more like they're not comfortable yet. Mm -hmm. They're still trying it out Mm -hmm. so I've heard a lot of teachers that English only Mm -hmm. English only well you're limiting them Mm -hmm. you know because you're not letting them use their first language to sometimes express something they still can't express themselves and say in the second language so just being empathetic also just showing that empathy I think that comes very natural to me because like you said I was in their shoes I was I do understand. I understand the familial aspect of it, of coming from another country and adapting. I I understand all of those all of those factors that maybe are ignored when you don't know 
too much about the background of students. Yeah, I think creating that safe place for them is huge. And I loved also in your presentation at the conference, you talked about, I'm going to mess up the term. There was a term you used that maybe you can (laughs) fill me in for, there's like the period where students are sort of silent and I really the silent period. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I had the words there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I related a lot to that because I feel like maybe I'm there right now with Spanish. Like I understand a lot, but I cannot speak it. Like I, my, when I try to speak, it's like all in present tense because I don't know any of the other tenses. It's like pieced together and just like you can barely understand what I'm trying to say, probably. <laughs> So it's yeah. more just listening, taking it in. Right, right. Yeah. So the silent period, you know, for you, it could take months. Mm-hmm. For another student, it might take a whole year. For another student, it might take weeks. So it's very different the way you learn. Mm-hmm. And this is the differentiated learning that we talk about, right? And just traditional learning. It's the same thing for language. So... You know, you can't go from level one to level two, kind of like you just can't go from algebra one to algebra two with everybody, Mm -hmm. right? So that's where you kind of have to, like I said, go back to that empathy, go back to that awareness, go back to that really getting to know your students. And I guess that comes with experience as well when you're in the class, because sometimes you're so scared to go because you have to meet a certain standard or you have to meet a certain goal, especially nowadays, you know, with all these standardized testing. I do understand that level of stress, but we're in this profession that it's about the person, right? So we're trying to let them, we're instilling in them learning that we hope that can go with them throughout their life, Mm -hmm. language especially. Mm -hmm. So we really have to adapt it to the needs of the students and give them the time they need. And that's where going into my program really helped as well to see that. And I do remember the students that were sort of silent. And when you don't know and you don't have that awareness as a teacher, you're like, oh, well, they don't want to participate or... You know, maybe they're not, you know, they don't understand me, so I'll reteach it. Mm. And it's not that they haven't grasped it. It's just like you say, like, they might be just absorbing. They might be absorbing. And there's four levels for language learning. You have to listen. You have to speak. You have to read. And the writing one, right? So you might be listening. You might be writing and reading but you're not speaking. And so you have to teach these four things, right? Because sometimes we kind of center it on the teacher speaking and the students listening, or they're just reading, or they're just writing. And so they have to practice all these four types of things for them to grasp everything. Mm -hmm. But like you said, they might be absorbing. So they might not be writing correctly, but they're absorbing. And so the silent period can affect all these four stages. Mm-hmm. So, And would you have any advice for teachers? Like the first advice I'm hearing is to know that it's an individualized process and it might take longer for some kids and shorter for some kids. And you just have to let them go through this process and be okay with this differentiation within your classroom. But then the other thing you mentioned is fitting it into standards and testing and like, how would you talk with your admin about this? And, you know, if if a teacher is getting pressure from admin and from, you know, all the things that admin are getting pressure from the budget and the tests and all this stuff, Mm -hmm. how would you talk about the idea that like this, it doesn't fit into these standardized testing schedules, (laughs) like this is a learning process and it might not fit your arbitrary schedule. (laughs) Yeah, this is where it's going to depend a lot on the values and the principles of the school. Mm. You know, what's the philosophy of the school? So I think that's where as a teacher, you know, we need a job. But I think at the same time, are you in the right place? Mm -hmm. Are you in the right school? Do your values coincide with what they're doing, you know, and 
I've been in situations where the school looks amazing and everything looks amazing. But when you're there, it doesn't quite click. Mm -hmm. Like it looks nice, but you're not really applying what you're saying, Mm -hmm. you know? And so there's this contradiction. So because like you said, administration has the the deadlines and the budgets and and it it, it becomes so bureaucratic mm-hmm. you know so teachers and administrators sometimes that's where we clash because they are busy and and we do need money right we do need money in school that we do need to get paid and everything and so i understand their situation but at the same time we're forgetting why we're there right and so that that can get really complicated. I don't have an answer for you because I wish I had an answer, but it gets really complicated because the administrators understand us, but their hands are tied. But I think things are changing. I think the pandemic really helped. In that way, it helped because I think we're getting a lot of funding. A lot of schools are getting funding for the arts. Mm-hmm. They're getting a lot of additional funding for support and resources because there's a lot of students that got left out Mm -hmm. and left behind yeah so hopefully the monies are allocated in the correct places where the communities need it the most right because Mm -hmm. just as every student's different every community's different Mm -hmm. every school is different you know school x might need more resources for tutoring versus school Y across the street might need more money allocated towards parent involvement or something like that. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the other thing that I thought of is maybe just some of the research that you're doing and the research that you've been learning about as well could be a place to point administrators towards if they, you know, Especially people that are, that they're like, yes, I get it. I know, like, I agree with you, teacher, but I have these other requirements up above me. That's where they can come in and be an advocate for you and your students and say, here's the research backing up what my teachers are saying. This is why we need to shift our budget or shift our schedule or shift, you know, whatever is blocking letting it be the way it should be, letting the students have the time they need. Yeah, I definitely think that like everything else, if it's research-based, they're going to listen to you a lot more. And that's something that a lot of teachers should get taught. Mm -hmm. They should get taught on how to research, how to make their presentations a lot more stronger. Because even the conference, you know, a lot of research went into that because I could say things that, I think or I feel, but ultimately, if it's research-based, research-informed, it will have a lot more presence, a lot more importance. And they, you know, it can go, like you said, it can go up to not just administrators, but it can go to the district. Mm-hmm. It can go to the state. Mm-hmm. And especially in California, where we have so many people coming and immigrating, and our economy, we don't say it, right? But our economy is affected by it as well. I think that making opportunities for students to be more successful is super important. So, and like I said, sometimes they are neglected. These programs, sometimes they're not even existent mm-hmm. in a lot of our schools. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you're the math teacher. But you also have to teach language and, you know, and and it's tough. Mm -hmm. It's really tough because you might be interested in language. So you do your own research and you try to like fix your lessons, but your colleague might not. They might be really math based or very science based or very, very into like sports and, you know, they love it. But I wasn't. I did I don't know anything about language mm-hmm. but at the same time all my population all my student population is bilingual mm-hmm. or trilingual or and there's value in your lived experience too and that's 
Like it's, I agree with you that having it be research backed gives it this level of what's the word I'm looking for, like sway or like influence in the world we're living in now. But I also just want to say that your lived experience and the lived experience of your students is just as valuable as all that research and your stories are just as valuable although they're not so valuable in the eyes of the bureaucracy. <laughs> so maybe we're yeah. we're trying to shift that at the same time as we're saying, but there's also all this research saying that our stories are true and valid and like real. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's definitely, especially in the times we are right now, I see more importance in, in storytelling and our experiences, our shared experiences and that connection, right? Mm -hmm. So that's another positive thing that I think came out of all these unfortunate events. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd love, I know you shared some really specific strategies for teachers in the classroom. Could you share just maybe a few strategies that teachers, especially art teachers, so if we're like, we don't necessarily have the language training, but there's things that we can do in our art classrooms to help our emergent bilingual students. I think. It's very important for us to know our value because mm -hmm. sometimes I've been, I've been an art teacher and sometimes it's kind of daunting that I'm still considered a hobby mm -hmm. or that students could miss my class because, you know, there were other things that were happening and it's just art, you know, and sometimes that attitude is tough on us because I, I think as art teachers, we're very intuitive. We feel a lot. Mm. I think a lot of most of us in the arts, we feel a lot. Mm. We're a very emotional people. So this empathy and everything kind of like, it's not hard for us. Mm. So the value that we bring to our schools, because we brighten up the school, we make smiles happen every day. We are teaching critical thinking all the time. Our mm -hmm. kids are coming up with their own ideas, their own voices, their own artwork. You know, we might give them the lesson, but they come up with their own individual expression on how to produce, mm -hmm. you know? So it's just so amazing to me when I kind of reflect on the work that our teachers do, because mm -hmm. we're empowering students all the time, mm -hmm. visuals and the arts. I don't think we could have survived Zoom classes <laughs> 2020 without the arts, mm -hmm. right? The arts liven up any lesson, that, whether it be science or math or anything. If you give them something kinesthetic, if you give them something visual, it it will motivate, it will engage students. So just having, knowing that value of ourselves, I think is very important. Advocating for yourself and with your colleagues, teaching them how to use art in other classrooms can also maybe be a positive. And just the power of, of the visual, right? You're teaching language, but Students are grasping all of this information, not just with what you're saying, but with the visuals that you're showing them. Make sure also to sometimes be very explicit. Sometimes we think we've taught something and everyone's like, yeah, but, you know, students are sometimes embarrassed to ask questions. So make sure that you're visually showing a word or grammar, make sure that you're connecting a visual to the word, mm -hmm. make sure there's a lot of opportunities for them to, and this can be done through presentations, um, for them to express their process, mm -hmm. their step-by-step -step process. Because that's so, it's very simple, but it's so important for students to reflect and see the process. How did I get from A to B? Mm -hmm. That's very important too. And I've heard also, I think it was in the conference, one of our colleagues was talking how they put, they have the markers, but they also have the word, mm -hmm. right? So kind of like I said, very explicit ex instruction, mm -hmm. but at the same time, very intentional. Yeah. 
so students can have very different ways of grasping language, whether it be through, like I said, through listening, through speaking, through reading, or through the writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love all of that, having things in your classroom labeled with the pictures and the words, and then having these chances for students to reflect maybe briefly in writing or speaking. It might even be, you know, you're even thinking of culturally relevant classrooms. You know, how many languages are being taught in your classroom? Like maybe invite students to write, you know, we have the English word, but, you know, maybe invite them to show the Spanish word, Mm -hmm. the Korean word, the Japanese word, or, you know, because at the same time, we're also not just teaching English, but maybe they want to learn another language. Mm -hmm. And you're also empowering the students that know that other language it's like oh my language is also important yeah and my culture is also important so i love that and that ties back to that language shift that you're empowering them and saying what you have is valuable and we want to see it like share it with us yeah yeah and also that idea i think we're also shifting as educators to not be the know-it-alls right Mm -hmm. we're the teachers we do have a lot of knowledge, but our kids come with knowledge as well. Our adult learners come with with knowledge as well. So shifting that idea of facilitating, just, you know, you're the facilitator. So how do I enable students to help each other, to collaborate, to do teamwork, to, to learn from each other? They can learn from me, but they can learn from each other as well. Yeah. And there was another great idea that I don't remember who it was. It might have been you or somebody else, or maybe we were just discussing it in that session. This idea of teamwork, but like pairing students up who are at different journeys in that emerging bilingual. Maybe one is like fully bilingual and then one is in that emerging stage, kind of pairing them so they can help each other that way. Exactly. Because like you said, you kind of touched on how my experience is important, but everybody's experience is also important, right? And they might relate to this other student who went through this and is now a more advanced learner, and they're just starting to learn the language. Like, how did you do it? How are you going? How did you get here, right? So that collaboration, I think, is very, it empowers It empowers the student that's helping the student that's struggling. And it also maybe it brings a little bit more comfort because sometimes I might be the teacher and I'm really like, they're not scared to come to me, but at the same time, I'm the teacher, right? Mm -hmm. It's different when you talk to a friend or a student or somebody your own age and Mm -hmm. they've got, they're going through the same thing. And I can relate, like I said, but I grew up in the 80s. It's 2022, right? So I, I'm cool, but I don't think I'm, I, I'm getting, I'm getting old. <laughs> yep, I feel you there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm also an 80s kid. <laughs> right. So retro's in, but you know, it's still different. So yeah. yeah. And I think that also that idea of pairing students up that way is really helpful as well for teachers who are not bilingual, like you need that student to step in and share their knowledge and help be sort of a bridge there. Especially in the art room, you know, you've been an art teacher, so there's like a million things going on all the time, right? And you do want to help that one student, but it's like someone's asking me for this and helping there and someone threw paint over there. It's like, it's just... Yeah, it can get crazy. And it's your chaos. But you know what's happening. And it's a good chaos. But at the same time, yeah, students helping students Mm -hmm. can be very, very beneficial. And it brings intimacy to the class as well, right? Like this connection, this safe place to learn, Mm -hmm. which is very important. So yeah, this sort of community. And yeah, that's true that it's you know, in a, especially in a tab classroom, like in a full choice classroom where, you know, one student sort of becomes the expert on a certain material or a certain media and they can share with other students that way. I've done some work 
doing observations for preschools and that's kind of like the tab right like they actually have their little sections yeah there's and this kid always chooses the the blocks and he's the expert in the blocks that he can build and blah blah, you know but and like i said it's it, it looks chaotic but they're learning they're learning through the experience they're learning through the cooperation they're learning through mistakes they're learning through fight, even like the fighting, right? Sharing the materials and stuff like that can become something where you can facilitate, you can tell them to how to, de- how to delegate or how to work through problems and be resilient and teach um, growth mindset as well. So, yeah, uh, so much there. Yeah. I did want to make time to talk about your own art making. I know we've briefly kind of touched on it, but I feel like that's, you know, that's an important part of this show. Yeah. And I like always bringing that in. I don't know if you'd want to kind of jump in there and share where you're at now and a little bit of your art making. It's something that I've been interested in, but I haven't been doing so much. And that is going outside and journaling and drawing in nature. I think that right now in my life, there's a lot of reflection going on. There's a lot of transitions going on. So I think journaling right now for me is very meditative. And at the same time, I can kind of practice on my watercolor skills and my drawing skills. And But for sure, I think journaling is very very it it really like that you see where you're going where you've gone it really it really like the writing process the drawing process is so reflective and so so inspirational and helpful for me at least so I've been doing I've been doing that yeah and then do you see that feeding into more work down the road yeah I would definitely want to see, maybe teach a journaling class, Mm. maybe how to use some art therapy, because that's another aspect of art teaching that is very interesting to me. Art therapy techniques on how to use art therapy Mm. through journaling. So that's something that I've been working on. And the program that I finished, my master's program, really centered on reflection it really centered on like I said the process and where you want your work to be so I think that that kind of ties into that whole journaling thing as well so mm-hmm. I kind of see where that's heading and I envision that hopefully as a share it sharing it with others not just with myself yeah but I love just hearing about Letting there be this time of reflection and letting there be this sort of, like we talked about before, this like ebb and flow in being an artist, but also letting the other parts of your life take priority or let the priorities kind of shift. I feel like that's inspiring to hear because that's reality. <laughs> like, yeah. You know? I think as adults, you know, maybe when I was a child or a teenager, I'd have that freedom but now like life has happened and kids and all of this so you kind of have to balance everything but you know we were kind of talking about how you have to focus and not feel guilty right and I kind of felt like that going into my master's program and working on TESOL it was like well am I gonna have to leave the arts to focus Mm -hmm. on TESOL but then there was this kind of niche right of well, how can art and English learning help each other? And that's kind of what, what you are doing, right? Like kind of teaching and art, like how do we help each other? Mm-hmm. And it's a very small niche. I haven't met a lot of people that are English teaching and artists, but we're out there. And it's mm-hmm. so, it's, it's very, it's empowering. And it makes me think, well, you know, I could do both. Mm-hmm. And while I'm still like, sometimes I do focus my energy in the English learning part, and then I kind of focus myself on the art part, you know, we can, it could come together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think it's, it's really valuable to have both going on and take time, like kind of go back and forth, like take time to focus on one and focus on the other. And Mm -hmm. I love what you talked about with using journaling to really reflect. And I guess maybe I'm curious there if in your art journaling, does some of your teaching and work in English learning, does that ever come into journaling? I not really. It's been kind of, they've been separate because my journaling is a little more about, I guess, the personal stuff about me, not, yeah, you know, I don't know. Yeah. But maybe I should add it. I should, <laughs> not like, that you have to. I'm just curious. But it'd be like, interesting. Show up? Yeah. Another project that I've been working and kind of not, I, I have it in the works, but not been working on it as much is going doing photography Mm. just looking looking Mm -hmm. just observing life and how it is now and how we're adapting how everyone's adapting Mm -hmm. and it's at the same time meditative to go out there because sometimes this pandemic has left us a little isolated Mm -hmm. you know and just going going out and and being not just with nature, but in your community and going back into the world, I guess. Photography, that's something that I've been working on, just wanting to take pictures, just stills. Yeah, I love that. I feel like I take so many pictures of my kid. <laughs> yeah. Taking the time to like stop and actually photograph things that just stand out to me as like, this is an interesting composition or this is something, you know, taking art photography versus just (laughs) mom photography. Exactly. (laughs) All the pictures that we have of our kids and different poses. Yeah. I I feel like in the same Uh, way. Yeah. Well, kind of wrapping up, I like to always ask this sort of big question. What are you curious about? am I curious about? I'm curious about where we're heading, yeah, education-wise. You know, sometimes there's good news. Sometimes there's bad news. Sometimes, you know, we're going back into the classroom. Sometimes we might go back to Zoom. Uh, So, like, I'm kind of curious on how we're heading. And, yeah, I'm being positive about it, hoping that because the kids... I think they love being, they be they love being in the schools and they love mm-hmm. being amongst each other, you know. Mm-hmm. So I hope that things get better. Yeah. Yeah, and that we can stay safely in person. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Okay, a lighter topic. <laughs> what is your favorite food? My favorite food. Oh my goodness. I love chocolate. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, yes. I have a sweet tooth. <laughs> but it has to be dark chocolate. Mm. And I'm really into right now fish. Like mm. we're be, we've been doing a lot of salmon and my son likes sea bass and mm. so yeah, we've been doing a lot yeah. of seafood, yeah. Yeah, I'm a big seafood lover too. We just so went good. to, I wasn't very familiar with Colombian food. Mm. So we went to a Colombian restaurant this weekend and they have some really good arepas. Mm. I recommend the arepas. All right. Yeah. That sounds really good. And then is there anything we kind of missed? Anything you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to? No, I just, you know, I'm just really happy to be here. I'm really happy that we found time to talk about how to better English language learning here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I would like to, I guess that's another big project, kind of like see how other countries mm-hmm. do their language learning. I know here in the U.S. we're still very unilingual. Mm-hmm. So I'd be very interested in talking with other teachers abroad and see how they work through language learning and adapt their teaching to multiple languages. So, yeah. And I'm really happy to find people that are interested in the same thing and building a community of practice, you know. 
Yeah. Where we can and talk about these issues. Along those lines, would you want to share where people can connect with you online? Yeah. So I have tesolscholar.com. And I actually have a Padlet in there that I curate a lot of resources for artists who want to teach language and for language teachers who want to maybe use the arts to teach. Because I've been in both worlds where you're an artist who want to help emergent bilinguals, but don't know how. And then I have a lot of colleagues who are English teachers or language teachers, but don't have that creativity too much. So they kind of struggle with that. Mm -hmm. And so both worlds can meet each other. And so I curate a lot of resources for them there through tesolscholar.com. And I hope to be adding some more stuff there, but definitely they can find my work there. And I'm on LinkedIn. So I have my profile there as well. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll link to everything as well. Great. And then is there anybody you would want to thank or give like a shout out to? Yeah, I definitely, well, through my journey with learning more about TESOL, I met Dr. Veronica Alvarez, and right now she's a professor at CalArts, and she did a lot of work for the Getty. So if you guys would love to learn more about her, she's amazing. And she also did work with the U.S. Department of State. I met her through the TISO conference. Yeah, and she, she actually did the work where she was doing... She was working with artists here, and then she went to a country in Europe, and she helped the museums over there kind of adapt language teaching to museums. And she worked there like six months. So I'm like, oh my God, I could do that sometime, right? Yeah. Oh. She was very inspirational. And my teachers at Pepperdine, Dr. Kevin Wong, Professor Jacobo Coronel, who is a English teacher at a middle school, and he's also a professor at Pepperdine. He's the one that really would give us a lot of information, updates on English language learning. Mm -hmm. Dr. Chen and Dr. Steinfeld, too, at Pepperdine, they were amazing people that really opened my eyes to a lot of things. Stephen Krashen's work. His effective filter hypothesis is really inspirational if anybody wants to learn about that. And it's just like how kids can learn language through reading what they like to read, Mm -hmm. right? So comics or just, right? Because sometimes we kind of like, oh, you have to read this list of books. Mm -hmm. And no, it's more like, okay, you pick what you want to read. And so they start getting this love for reading and this love for language and this love for learning, but it doesn't feel like work. So yeah. his his hypothesis is really, really interesting. So, yeah, that yeah. feels so accurate for any, you know, even my my daughter who's not really learning, like she's just learning English, but learning how to read. She loves the cat kid, cat boy, whatever is dog uh, man. Dog man, yeah, yeah. Dog yeah. man and cat boy. Like <laughs> those. <laughs> Those sort of funny comic books. Yeah, but that's how they're learning, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's actually, he would joke about that he's the only person in the world. He does research on comics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they were very, yeah, that's some of the people that I would suggest people chat and learn from. Mm-hmm. This this other person was at the TESO conference, Glenn Singleton. And he talks about courageous conversations mm-hmm. and talking about a lot of systemic racism that is talked about now and a lot of issues related to race. Mm-hmm. And so he's all like, how can we have these courageous conversations amongst each other, mm-hmm. you know, so we can learn more and be more accepting. So Glenn Singleton, for sure. Yeah. 
And I love, I feel like I've heard that the idea of courageous conversations in the classroom, but I love the idea of doing that with colleagues and, you know, that you have to, as an adult, get used to talking about these things and get used to the discomfort before you bring it into the classroom. Sometimes we're worried about the students, but I think it's easier with the students than it is with adults, right? And it's even more like scary to approach a colleague or something like that Mm -hmm. because you don't want to offend them or you don't want to. But how's there going to be change again if we're not open to the change? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you so much, Anna. This was wonderful. I'm excited to share with everyone. I'll be sharing all of your links. And yeah, just thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. Thank you, Rebecca, for the time, for the space, for your intention. And I hope that this opens more doors to more discussions. And that's what I loved about our conference. It was very small, but I think that our discussion was so rich and I hope that we have more opportunities to, to do this and that people want to talk about it and, and find ways to better our educational system. So thank you, Rebecca, for your time. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or Teaching Artist Podcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.